Today, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups, New Zealand. In this special episode, we fly across the Tasman to learn about the incredible startup ecosystem the Kiwis have created over the last couple of years. We'll start at the top, speaking to Chris Twiss, who heads the seed investment program for New Zealand's Venture Investment Fund. The government has played a big role in helping to find startups funding, and Chris takes us through the history and successes of VC, which is played as a team sport in New Zealand. Then we have a chat with Nick Sherwing and Jonah Merchant, co-founders of BizDojo, a co-working space that's evolved to a core support in New Zealand's startup ecosystem. Co-working and startups seem to go together like a hand in a glove, and Nick and Jonah have taken BizDojo deeper, providing incubation and investment for New Zealand's startup community. Finally... What's it like to be the first employee of New Zealand's hottest hardware startup? We'll talk to Anthony Harbers and Shenzhong Park of StretchSense about what it means to be pulled into a very early stage startup and how growing only leads to all the wheels falling off the cart. That and lots more from the universe next door on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Create Your Own Radio Station Omni Radio and Studio Mint, interior designers to the tech sector. This week, This Week in Startups Australia is not in Australia. We're in New Zealand. We've crossed the Tasman to the universe next door to find out what's going on over here. And what we found is that there's a venture community, an investment community, and a startup community that's as vital as anywhere in the world. To help uh, introduce us to that community, today we're talking to Chris Twist, who is the investment director for the New Zealand Venture Investment Fund. Chris, welcome to This Week in Startups New Zealand. Thanks, Mark. Pleasure to be here. So tell me what the New Zealand Venture Investment Fund is. The Venture Investment Fund, or VIF as it's known here in New Zealand, was established uh, by the New Zealand government in 2001. It was originally a $260 million program co-investing alongside US-styled uh, formal professional venture capital managers. So the purpose of the program was to catalyse the development of the formal venture capital market in New Zealand. It was a program that was copied off the Yosma program in Israel, which one, our then Minister of um, Economic Development had travelled up there and saw that, came back to New Zealand in about 1999 and said, we've got to have one of those. So that program has been um, co-investing alongside professional venture managers now since 2001. Uh, to date, we have partnered with nine venture capital managers. And these are managers like Endeavour Capital based in Wellington, Pioneer Capital in Auckland, and also uh, Peter Thiel's Valor Ventures was a, um, a sort of a novel type of um, co-investment partnership that we have on, had on the venture side. And to date, that program has invested about $110 million New Zealand dollars alongside those partners into 60 um, young New Zealand innovation companies. So what you actually did then, it almost sounds like it functioned as an incubator and accelerator for venture capital in New Zealand. 
I guess so. It was, well, I guess it's more just um, aimed at the fact that in order for fledgling, young venture capital manager teams to get underway, uh, we're really able to give them a helping hand in terms of providing um, an underpinning uh, the capital base. So we'd be the first institutional investor to support them, and on the back of that, they're able to go out and bring in other institutional investments. So there's often teams who haven't been venture managers before, so it's notoriously hard for them to get underway. We run a sort of, you know... Uh, um, world-class institutional uh, investor due diligence process past these um, these partners. Uh, once they've got to th- that and they've accessed our money, it's been a lot easier for them to access other money and get underway. So you're the bar, if you can get across this bar. <laughs> I suppose so. But then, then the good news was in sort of about 2005, um, the government decided, well, that's, that's a great idea. It's going to take a decade or two for that market to really fully develop. What are we going to do on the angel investment side? And so, again, they looked far afield and in Scotland found a fund called the um, Scotland's uh, Seed Co-Investment Fund. And so in 2006, New Zealand's Seed Co-Investment Fund was established. That's a $40 million fund that co-invests directly alongside angel investors throughout New Zealand. All right, let's, because these terms can often, from country to country and market to market, be very fungible. So what would you say venture levels are? What would you say angel levels are in terms of both the maturity of the company and the size of the investment? Yeah, so probably starting from the bottom up, um, on the angel market in New Zealand, we are talking here, and I'm talking about the formal identifiable market in New Zealand. We've got about 15 angel networks or angel small angel funds that op- are active in New Zealand, and they're really operating at the pre-seed, seed, very early stage um, type of company. So these are companies that are, are sort of certainly pre-commercialisation. I'd like to describe it sometimes as, you know, if it's pre-seed and seed, slightly north of an idea, but south of south of a, a viable product right, and revenue. paying customers, yeah. <laughs> um, the venture side, and, and, and amounts uh, typically of, you know, raising, say, half a million to $1.5 million at pre-money valuations of between half a million New Zealand dollars and two million New Zealand. So these are very young young companies. So the venture side is a part of the market here, which is more typically, um, the framework there is more typically investments of the scale of sort of two to five million and companies that are certainly more established in, in their um, sort of life cycle. So And the, looking to grow. Absolutely, yeah. So, But still early stage through to yeah, early expansion, which is you know really orientated towards you know, growth capital. But these are you know, more established companies for sure. All right. So take us through for the folks in Australia and in America who really don't have any sense of what is going on in New Zealand. Take us through the kinds of things that go on here. What are you folks good at? What would we know you for? What kinds of companies do you see being formed? Yeah, so across the whole NZVIF portfolio now, we've got about a 190 companies, most of which are still active in some form or other, and many of which have, have been successfully exited now. So across the New Zealand scene, and so NZVIF, I should say, is a really unique beast by international standards. We've got the venture um, program, which has been running now for 14 years, and then we've also got the, uh, and you will find examples of that around the world, and Australia has had one until quite recently, um, and you will find the Yosma scheme still running in Israel. But we've also got the Seed Co Investment Fund, which was copied from the Scottish model. There are only about five Seed Co Investment Funds of this nature running in the world. Other countries who have them include the Netherlands and Portugal. 
What I mean to say, though, is there's only one country in the world that has both the venture program and the seed program in tandem, and it is New Zealand. Right. What that does mean, as I describe the whole environment here, is that this New Zealand program is a very significant player in it, and we have a big insight into into the um, investment activity and the entrepreneurial activity that's going on. So perhaps I'll just focus on the angel side for a moment. Mm. We began actively investing alongside angel partners in 2006, and we now track very accurately the formal, this, this identifiable angel market in New Zealand, and we do so through a bi-month, biannual publication called Young Company Finance. So to put that formal angel market in perspective, in 2006, uh, we recorded that there were something like 21 million New Zealand dollars of investment into 30 deals uh, across New Zealand. So the latest um, Young Company Finance edition has just come out for the full year 2014, and angel groups and networks invested just over 55 million into 120 deals. So there's been quite a significant growth in that formal angel market um, throughout New Zealand. The Seedco Investment Fund would be, would participate in over 70% of all of that activity. So I would say, I would characterise it as saying the angel market in New Zealand is thriving. You know, I've seen analogies where people have said from a US perspective, so New Zealand with a population of just over 4 million, investing um, about $55 million a year, would be um, comparable to metropolitan Boston in terms of angel activity from formal groups. So I would say our angel, formal angel market is um, You know that I'm a Bostonian originally, yeah. right? <laughs> no, I don't. But <laughs> So look, that, that side of things is extremely encouraging. So what are some of the other parts of the market in addition to the formal, you know, and more traditional? And these, are, these angel networks um, uh, bear a uh, very close resemblance to the US-style angel network. And in fact, our, our formal... Angel Network community in New Zealand is increasingly and closely connected to the American one. The whole group of us have travelled. So sort of angel list in those sorts of... No, more, more your sort of common angels, band of angels, you know, your classic US-style uh, angel network. So we've formed uh, and are forming close ties with our um, American colleagues and have been doing so over many years now. Outside of that in New Zealand, you have increasing amounts of investment in angel, these angel-type deals from high-net-worth individuals. Right. One of the big things that, uh, one of the big differences between New Zealand and, say, the US market is it's still a very nascent and young market here. What we don't have is a lot of activity from returning entrepreneurs. So that's a huge part of the American market. Probably the cornerstone of of your really early-stage investment market. And we're just at the earliest stages in New Zealand of seeing situations where entrepreneurs who have actually made their money in technology and innovation are returning to reinvest. So we can point to you know less than 10 individuals in New Zealand who are involved in that kind of activity, but we would expect to see more of that over time. And in fact, that, that recycled capital from tech success will be become a big part of our um, you know early stage capital market here. Do you find that you are spending time educating investors in what it means to be an angel investor and how to be an angel investor? Definitely. There's a lot of um, emphasis on that in the New Zealand market. And in fact, um, our colleagues in, from the US have been very instrumental. Um, and these are people like um, Bill Payne and Dan Rosen um, and Ian Sobieski from uh, San Francisco. Uh, we've had a pretty continuous cycle of these people coming through our market, and they have materially moved the dial here in terms of um, education around angel investing in particular. So, you know, that's been very important. We've got a thriving angel association here, I guess much like the Angel Capital Association, the ACA in the US, um, and they've been education is a huge part, a, f- a huge focus for them. Mm. You're listening to this week in startups, New Zealand. We'll be right back. <laughs> 
Hi, this is Mark Pesci. If you're like me, you like to listen to a lot of internet radio stations, podcasts, all sorts of things from everywhere. Well, Omni Radio lets you create your own personal radio station out of that. You can listen to popular podcasts like this one. You can listen to radio shows. You can mix them with music or your own playlists from Spotify, radio, or your phone. Omni Radio also gets your local news and your weather updates. Download Omni Radio free from the App Store or on Google Play. We're back with Chris Twiss, Investment Director for the New Zealand Venture Investment Fund. Okay, so Chris, what kinds of businesses do New Zealanders excel at starting? What kinds of great projects, products, services do you see New Zealanders bringing to you? I think there's no doubt that the New Zealand startup um, ecosystem for a long time has em- has embraced the sort of idea of the the weightless export and software and services as a really which is funny for a country that actually is the milk provider <laughs> to the entire world, right? But yeah, go on. With no, that. We, no, we also enjoy sort of sending things that, that aren't in containers and <laughs> ships as well. No, I think that's certainly so. And to put that in perspective, again, the you know, New Zealand Venture Investment Fund with nearly 190 portfolio companies invested in over. You know, 14 years, half of all those companies are in the software and, and services sector. So, and to give a re- couple of really good examples, and, and I think the first one in particular, a company called Zero. Um, XERO, uh, which is a uh, software as a service uh, accountancy package. It's um, competing with Intuit in the US um, and, and M- MYOB in, in Australasia and other places. So, yeah. um, look, I think this is a really a great example. It's it's a company that uh, has been listed now, I think, on the New Zealand Stock Exchange for about three years. It has a current, current, cu- current market cap of something like two billion New Zealand dollars, I think. Um, and that's really... So it's a unicorn. Yeah, well, You've it's, got yourself a unicorn there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and Rod Drury, the uh, founding CEO, uh, um, Zero is his sort of third software company. So he's graduated up through through the ranks, if you like, with a couple of early startups and then really really going for the big time with um, Zero. So that's a great example. Another one which was listed on the New Zealand Stock Exchange, and, and Zero is a, is a company that NZVIF uh, co-investors in as well, as, as we are in a company called Orion Health. So this is um, healthcare software uh, listed on the New Zealand Stock Exchange with a market cap of several hundred million dollars now. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, on its way to, to growing it for yeah, unicorn. Yeah, and, and um, the US is absolutely one of its biggest markets and it's been active in that market, I, I, I suspect, for over a decade. So we, I think in the software side is definitely a, a core area of strength. So And these are both SaaS. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So do you see New Zealanders? I mean, I guess particularly because, you know, in a way we can, I ask Australians, are you focused locally or are you focused internationally? Australia, uh, New Zealanders really don't get to choose. You always have to be focused on export, right? Mm. Yeah, and look, that, th- that leads to an absolutely fascinating dynamic in our startup world. And, you know, US is a good, a good comparator in this respect. Well, they don't have to focus <laughs> on export. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. So if you look at a program like NZVIF, what's quite unusual about it is that, you know, if, if the you had the equivalent program in the US, 95% of your investee companies would be US focused. Well, we have this program here and 95% of our companies are focused internationally from day one. So that presents a whole 
whole different set of sort of challenges and risk profiles from an investment perspective as well. But I, well, yeah. It must mean that you have to be able to be very clear with them about what their marketing plan is because to market a product globally is expensive mm. and it's going to be expensive from day one, right? I mean, even if you have a staged approach. So do you actually sort of see companies get knocked back because they, they say, oh, well, we'll go global and you don't have a plan for that? I think the main thing I would see there is that this um, entrepreneurial market, as, as in any other around the world, adapts very rapidly. So what I'm going to say is the secret source of internationalising, uh, I think the, the source is looking better each day. And so if you could reflect back five or ten years, you'd sort of you'd certainly find a lot of that. But the reality is now the entrepreneurial community is getting more and more sophisticated as to what is actually re- required to internationalise. And companies like Zero and Orion are really really lifted the bar, but also importantly, the aspiration level of our entrepreneurial base. Mm. So it's not so much now as it was only five or ten, six years ago, oh, you know, I think we're quite capable of developing a, a nice 30, 40, 50 million dollar software company or, you know, bio, bio, biotech company. People are looking that, at that now and going, wow, that's really changing our view of aspiration in terms of what can be achieved from here. So similar to what Alassian has done in Australia around yeah. that, that everyone now knows that they, you, and again, it's software as a surface. Mm. And so there's this, this, this sense that there's a space for that. Yeah. Does this then also mean that New Zealand is now growing a generation of entrepreneurs who have real skills in being able to take a product international from the earliest days, which is something that you wouldn't necessarily find in an American software startup. I mean, does that give you guys an edge? Uh, I don't think it gives us an edge because we've got no choice. But um, <laughs> well, you, you, you grow that you grow the skills you need. No, right? the necessity still, is no, other. absolutely. And I mean, the other thing that happens is, I mean, you you know, across the startup system, you have this predominance of you know, it's probably to be. Frank, mainly male and average age 45 to 65 and 80% of whom have had no direct experience in, in developing an international or growing an international technology company. So the other thing I'd say is just generationally anyway, you've got younger people coming through with a totally different view of the world than any of the other, the more established people in the market have. So they'll create their own rules. But I think we can, and, and they'll be, um, they'll feel that there are less boundaries and they'll, they're growing up in a world where they, they think is, everything's accessible anyway. So they don't have any sort of hang-ups as we might have had in the past about we can't do this from here. So those whole generations are coming through, and they'll just do they'll do their thing. But they'll find, and they'll um, come into a community that's already quite well advanced um, and dynamic in New Zealand, and there's a lot of sharing of know-how and you know what is. What, what, are, what are the best ways to internationalise these companies? Because it isn't easy. Um, and at the same time... No, that's, and that's why yeah. I think because you're getting skill in that, mm. that's part of the maybe a, a New Zealand edge here. Uh, uh, potentially, I think, you know, you call it an edge, but at the end of the day, we just wherever we arrive and to um, sell something, we... You know, it's probably not the New Zealandness at the end of the day that makes a difference. It just has to be good. Um, and so I think we're, we're already at the point where we can... Um, we know that we can compete anywhere in the world, and, and we are. Um, yeah. So I want to talk about one thing that's really caught my eye, where New Zealand is clearly ahead of the world. You completely changed your financial regulation last year, and you can now have crowd investing. Now, theoretically, in America, they can have crowd investing, but the SEC has basically had a stroke trying to change the securities law to accommodate this. Australia has announced that we will have crowd investing. ASIC is currently having a stroke. 
trying to figure out how to make it happen. You've actually made it happen. You now have crowd investing. It is working. You are raising money. I want to ask you first, how has that changed the way both angel and venture capital have started to operate in New Zealand? And B, where do you see that going? Mm. Yeah, and, and I'm a great uh, personal fan of the way in which our regulator has approached that, which is uh, similar, I think, in, to the UK, um, where they felt confident enough to um, enable this industry to get underway and, and sort of learn by doing, mm. rather than um, sort of navel gaze and, and sort of delay for years. And, and try years. to get it all right before you actually get anything out yeah, there. Yeah, so I'm a fan of that. That said, um, like all other aspects of uh, any market, but in this case a capital market, um, it's going to take some years uh, to evolve and to really be able to see where where crowdfunding for certainly young technology companies fits into the picture. But back to my earlier point, though, that that said, the entrepreneurial base and the investor base, it's a very dynamic, fast-learning market. So within our partnership base, you know, even in February 2014, uh, we invested into a new company uh, we, that was led by a group of New Zealand uh, angel networks, so a syndication of four angel groups, mm-hmm. um, and then also syndicated with um, our crowd, so an Israeli um, crowdfunding site. That's an accredited investor yeah. crowdfunding site. So that, that was early 2014, so we already see that activity. Just last week, um, so um, Snowball Effect, which is one of the New Zealand crowdfunding yes. platforms, um, has had a company called Breathe Easy on that, so that's a... That's one of our investee companies. So, again, so you're using it. You're yes, actually, using it. Yeah, as you can see. So it's not antagonistic. It's oh, no. This is another way to bring capital in. Yeah, I think so. That, to answer to your question, it will evolve, but we already see examples of where um, more traditional, established parts of the market will interact mm-hmm. um, if the conversation is the right one and it's the right thing for the company and for investors. I think... Um, so how, how does yeah. that, if I can, just so does, has it changed the game at all for retail investors who might be now looking at those kinds of investments in a portfolio or do you see that happening at all? Because those folks would not normally be in venture capital or even in angel investing and now that you see this sort of crowd investing, has that changed the public's perception? Well again, I think we just have to be realistic that it will take a long time to evolve. Now it's great, you know, Formerly, these crowdfunding operations have been running in New Zealand since 1 July 2014. And they have had um, their first crop of investments, but it's still a low number. I think collectively probably less than 10 companies. Right. So it takes a and, and not all of those would be in the startup tech innovation space. So it will take a long time for this to come through. I think another key thing for me is you have got, in, in, in the world of early stage company investment and crowdfunding, you know, we have to be very clear. You've got the accredited investor side, like AngelList in the US, uh, which hasn't really um, got any uh, momentum in New Zealand yet, but will, because that base of accredited investors in New Zealand is substantial and a really untapped market. And, and I, I would imagine that um, companies like AngelList will come to New Zealand in due course, but other offerings may also come up. The unaccredited, which is your classic sort of crowd, you know, equity crowdfunding, is operational in New Zealand and. I just we just have to watch the space a little bit. Is to 
Um, I think there's there's some philosophical sort of issues there about whether this type of investment is appropriate oh, that, for, for the, the mum and dad investor. Absolutely, but, but that's the interesting thing is that you're actually having that conversation in mm. New Zealand where it's really quite still quite theoretical in America or in Australia. Mm. We haven't even gotten to the point where we have had that conversation yeah. because our institutions are moving very slowly. And one of the things that I'm very clear on just from my exposure to New Zealand is that you actually have a capacity to move very quickly. Well, for sure, I think we've got quite a quite a history in terms of and financial services and financial services uh, regulation and technology actually because um, you know I think we're one of the first countries in the world to have FPOS and automatic payment etc. I mean to to be fair, um, it's a bit easier to organise these things in New Zealand than it is across the whole of the United States. And just on that note, you know we do if you think about it from someone who's not familiar with New Zealand. This is a fundamentally a, a small country split into two islands, but our early stage investment capital market uh, works very collegiately. Um, across the formal angel market, over 80% of all deals are syndicated between two or more angel groups. So, you know, you've got the, what is it, the, the sort of the Californias, the flyover states in the, in the US. New Zealand is just one, one homogenous angel market and pretty closely connected. Um, and it's an easier place to do, you know, we don't, we don't have a federal and a state government system. In many respects, it's an easy place to do regula- regulation around this stuff. Yeah. Chris Twist, thank you very much for being our first guest on This Week in Startups New Zealand. <laughs> Pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about a project that's really close to my heart. Now, for the past few years, I've been giving folks a lot of advice about how to crowdfund successfully. Ian and Danny from GoFar, who are here on the first series of Twista, in fact, have launched their own crowdfunding campaign, and we'll be hearing from them next week about how that worked out. Now, I've learned a lot from my own crowdfunding campaigns, and what I've done is I've passed that advice along to others. I'd like to pass the secrets of successful crowdfunding along to you. So I'm leading seminars in August in both Sydney and Melbourne that will teach you where to find your backers, how to set your goals, and how to plan and execute a successful crowdfunding campaign. Crowdfunding is the new way to bring your startup, your project, and your dream to life. Find out more at markpesci.com slash crowdfunding. One of the hallmarks of any growing entrepreneurial community is the availability of co-working spaces. Co-working spaces are more than just a place to plop a desk. They're places that you connect with your peers to learn more about what's going on in the community. And right now I'm speaking with the founders of Biz Dojo, which is that space in Auckland. Jonah Merchant and Nick Schering, welcome to This Week in Startups New Zealand. Woo, what an intro. Hey, Mark, thank you. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how Biz Dojo got started. Go, Jonah. On you. <clears throat> I'll field this one. Uh, so Nick and I um, come from technology backgrounds. We worked together at Air New Zealand for a number of years in the innovation team. Um, and the time that we were there was um, quite a transformational time, probably in the New Zealand's corporate scene, where Air New Zealand had lifted itself out of the ruins of... Um, you know, the, the ANSET disaster in Australia um, had gone through quite a cultural transformation with Rob Fife, the CEO, and was using technology as a, as a real way to um, lift uh, Air New Zealand up as a global competitor and really make it um, a world-leading um, organisation. 
Uh, and as part of the innovation team there, we were right at the forefront of that um, work. We got to do a large program around uh, the long-haul customer experience, mm-hmm. um, which was uh, driven by um, IDEO, who had been engaged by Air New Zealand to come over and lead that piece of work. And as part of that process, we spent a lot of time working in a Skunk Works warehouse with a very... Um, uh, diverse cross-functional team of... Um, so did that give you a sense then for the idea that that kind of space was actually really valuable to innovation? Yeah, absolutely. And, well, um, well, not just the space, but actually that combination of different perspectives and different disciplines, that that was probably the thing that really resonated with me. I'd never worked in a project team before with such a varied mm-hmm. array of skill sets. Mm, yeah, cross-pollination of ideas, um, hugely uh, inspirational work environment to be mm-hmm. based out of. You know, we were prototypes typing and iterating all kinds of new services and technology stuff for the airline and at the end of that project Nick and I um, came out of it and we were like you know wow we've been we don't want to leave this yeah we've been spoiled for life and we weren't really sure what was the next thing for us after that Mm. Um, and it was around that time we really sort of noticed what was happening in the co-working space um, offshore Um, we saw what was happening in the US out of Silicon Valley what was happening in Europe and uh, we had a look at the co-working scene and then we kind of compared that to the experience we'd had at the airline. And we looked at it and we thought, hey, it's slightly different backgrounds. It's, you know, corporate versus um, a, a little bit of more of a startup focus. But a lot of the principles and the things and the experience were actually exactly the same. And so we thought, hey, we can probably have our cake and eat it too a little bit here where we can um, continue on with that kind of same inspirational kind of environment. But at that point, are, you, are the two of you the only two people in Auckland who are thinking, ooh, a co-working space is going to be a good thing? Or did you actually well, find a lot of people who were like, yes, let's make this happen? Well, well the, the term co-working was in its infancy. I mean, you know, we probably for the first couple of years, we actually had to spend a lot of time educating people about the term co-working. And they went, oh, you mean a shared office? A serviced office. And you go, no, 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 this idea of community and collaboration and connection, a sense of place and a sense of home. So in Auckland, when we first kicked off, it was really quite selfishly around creating an environment that we just wanted to work in every day, that we wanted to be surrounded by people who are but, but isn't, I mean, isn't that the essence of it? If you're going to create something, isn't it going to be something that you're going to want to use yourself? Oh, I think Otherwise, so. Otherwise, why bother? Um, I think... For us, it was really around we'd been searching for a sense of home and a sense of place, and uh, and I guess we we wanted to be around that kind of energy and charisma that we had experienced within in New Zealand. Um, at the time when we first started talking to people about setting up a space, we we had some early adopters like everyone does. Mm. We said, "Hey, this really resonates with me. I've experienced Burning Man. I've gone to this and that, and you know, I'm searching for something like this." And um, and they became our first founding residents, and uh, the vast majority of them. One in particular, Amanda Wright, who was uh, she's the founder of Splore Music Festival, and now has gone on to do some really amazing things in sustainability world. Um, she became a, a huge advocate for us. We mm-hmm. were two guys who were just um, prototyping and building it as we went along, and she went out there and started, you know, kind of um, singing the praises of the environment and the people. And so our, our first little. Our first little space that we set up here in the Iron Bank building on K Road, we outgrew that really rapidly. Mm-hmm. We immediately ended up with, you know, sort of 20 people jammed into a space for about 10. Um, and then it's kind of just exploded from so there. how did the business that you're in now 
differ from what you thought you were going to be in when you set up shop? Because you said you really listened to people and presumably you adjusted what you were doing. So how did, you know, no business survives its encounter with its first customer, right? How did the business change and what you were doing change? Um, I think it probably expected just what you were saying before about building when we started we wanted to build an environment that we wanted to work from mm-hmm. ourselves and we wanted to surround ourselves with a whole bunch of interesting people that we would want to work with and do things with so I think when we started we were probably focused around our own other projects and potentially the space was just a mechanism by which to we activate those to activate those and I think what we actually learned very quickly was that um, we actually found the whole process of um, supporting other people's businesses as they came in mm. and they grew and having that exposure to actually creating a community of people that's um, were mutually supportive and wanting to help people build their business and to um, achieve their goals. And, and that actually became something that we probably didn't realise at the start. It became a really big, important thing for us personally and it was actually something that then started to drive how we evolved the business. So we, we kind of morphed over time, yeah, I think. So, so um, but what you found is that the support that you wanted actually then became the support for you to be able to achieve other things and be able to provide support for other people yeah Yeah, I mean we I guess for us we've always um, BizDojo always runs as a symbiotic relationship with its community its residents you know um, we can't succeed if our residents aren't succeeding and if their businesses aren't growing and they aren't achieving what their goals are so well this brings up a very important point because you now start to offer a range of investment and incubator services, which actually makes you a little bit different than many other co-working spaces. How did you end up thinking that that was the right thing to do, and how do you actually do it? Um, really, really good question. And some of those things we're still finding our footing in. It. Um, I guess for us, we uh, very simply take a holistic approach at how our residents function. So, what's challenging them? Our community team spends their time engaging and talking to those residents. Mm-hmm. You know, where are they at? Um, what's going on at home? What's going on with their customers? What's going on with their work? Where are the struggle points? And our role, uh, we feel, is to try and um, smooth that out, to try and help where we can. So, if someone says to us, hey, I'm really struggling. I need a developer, you know, to help me get my project across the line. Our community team are going, okay, let's find out if we've got another developer across the community that right. can collaborate and help them. And so part of some of the stuff around incubation or investment, it's just a natural progression. These guys are looking for um, they're looking for money, they're looking for support. But where does this, I guess, cross the line between giving someone a helping hand and then actually going, okay, this is going to be a more formal relationship and BizDojo might want equity or that? I mean, you have to have those lines somewhere or else it sounds like things would get a little messy. Yeah, it's, it's funny. We try and help everyone regardless. Mm. Um, we don't take equity in someone's business unless we're prepared to stump up cash. You know, we've, we're firm believers that cash is king. Uh, it is for our residents. Um, and so what we traditionally do is we, we build strong relationships with investment funds or with uh, the incubators like Ice House or Creative HQ. And for us, it's about providing access to our community to those kind of people. Um, we're not trying to be everything to everyone. We're just trying to be taking kind of be in their corner be their champion to a degree and go hey who do you need 
you know, and some of the stuff here uh, when it comes to supporting the growth of a startup sometimes isn't those kind of areas. It's more around them having a sounding board to talk to us or talk to other residents about the stresses and the pressures they're dealing with. It's again, it's that support, but that support isn't just physical. It's psychological. It's, you know, having someone going, oh my God, I know this problem. I've seen this problem. Before. Well, I mean, one of the things that we really, really resonates with us is the sense of a village or a sense of a, a really strong community. I mean, the, I suppose why people feel so comfortable with co-working spaces as we've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. It's just been called a village. All right. This is a question I want to ask Jonah. If we've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years and we call it co-working now, where is this going? Is this going to be the way that most people, when they work in an office, will be working most of the time? I mean, I've already had folks on the show where we talk about the fact that long-term jobs, full-time jobs, are essentially sort of starting to evaporate into gigs, which last, you know, months generally. And is co-working the way that we're going to be working? You know, will our kids all be in co-working spaces rather than in, uh, you know, feeding pens in the future? It's a, yeah, it's an interesting um, question, actually. It's one that we've been thinking about a lot um, as we've kind of been thinking about our future plans and, and how, we, how we grow as a business. I think um, the nature of work is absolutely changing. And I think... Um, the kind of the definition of where a company or an organisation starts and finishes is going to become more blurry mm. as, as the years go on. Um, I don't think necessarily that everybody is going to be working out of co-working spaces. I think co-working spaces are going to be a fundamental and important part of certain parts of the market. I think if you look at the startup kind of ecosystem and that smaller business side of things, absolutely, you know, I think more and more people will be um, starting to work out of co-working spaces. And I think as knowledge workers start to evolve and change and, you know, uh, technology supports people working from any environment whenever they like, um, then co-working will be a big piece of that model. Um I read a really interesting thing on the weekend actually talking about the Hollywood kind of model of production. From the New York Times, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's definitely... I'll I'll link to that when we do this interview so people can read that. Yeah, and I think that's definitely... You're going to see that where you have very highly skilled, specialised people who are kind of working on a contract or project basis coming in and and co-working spaces can provide those environments for those teams to come together, work on a particular project and then they can disperse and go on to the next... So do you see... um, a whole bunch of biz dojos across New Zealand. You already now have one in. Well, you have two in Auckland now. You have one in Wellington. You just opened up. Is that an, is the the last question? So, if you sort of want to gaze into your crystal ball, how does Biz Dojo grow with? the rest of what we would think of around this space. So, I mean, growth is a really interesting um, thing for us. I suppose when we launched nearly six years ago, we were just thinking about how we could have a room surrounded by really cool people. Now there's... Now you've got rooms of them. Now we're, now we're kind of um, looking after, you know, um, on the way to 10,000 square metres of space. Um, you know, we have a community that is, um, you know, flexing up to six 700 people in any given month that could be working from those environments. And, uh, and we seem to have a, a growing global community of people that are utilising our spaces. So people who come and do summer in Auckland rather than the winter in London, um, which grows from one person to now three or four and, and on and on and goes. So for us, we're really excited about where we can take these learnings and launch more physical environments um, globally. Um, we're really we're really excited about some of the work we're doing with regional councils in New Zealand to help um, 
you know, kind of a little segue, but um, we're kind of not really focusing on a lot of regional development in the world. We kind of look yeah. at these major cities yeah. and we kind of leave these smaller support towns. And, and we saw a lot in Queensland where um, you've got Brisbane and you've got, you know, I think 100,000 people a day commuting up to two or four hours driving to get into Brisbane. And so we're really interested in how we can take the learnings around community and around these environments and push that back into some of these smaller regions to help them develop. Um, for us, uh, I think BizDojo in the coming years will have um, more locations through Australia and through Asia. We're working on some pretty cool collaborations in that space now. Um, our goal is to have 10,000 residents interacting in our environments over the next five years. And to achieve that, we're going to need um, both our own spaces, but also stronger alliances and relationships with others. Um, for us, we just want to make it easier for these people to move around the world and interact with each other. That's our goal, um, whether it's in our space or someone else's. Jonah, Nick, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups New Zealand. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Pleasure. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I'd like to tell you about Studio Mint. They're Australia's only interior design consultancy that works specifically with fast-growing technology companies. With a strong knowledge of the Australian tech space and an understanding of the unique needs of hyper-growth businesses, Studio Mint delivers unique, sustainable, and affordable office spaces that look pretty damn cool. The team from Studio Mint works to a philosophy that's based around activity, productivity, and well-being in the workplace, designing great-looking office spaces that people actually want to work in. Visit studiomint.com.au slash twist today. One of the best things about doing this show is I actually get to visit entrepreneurs in their places of work doing amazing things. And right now, in New Zealand, in Anahanga, New Zealand, which is a suburb of Wellington, I'm in an industrial park. You will see the pictures on our Tumblr. And in this industrial park, I'm in the offices of StretchSense, a tiny little startup that is making amazing devices that can detect the flexion, the pressure, the bending of the human body. And I'm talking to two of the folks who are instrumental in that startup. And you'll hear some noise in the background because we are literally right next to the production floor because everything here is in one room. So I'd like to welcome to This Week in Startups New Zealand, Anthony Harbers, who is the business development executive and the very first employee of StressSense, and Xinjiang Park, the head of marketing. How are you doing, Mark? All right, so tell me, really, what is StretchSense doing? What do you have here that's so special that you've got a whole room full of people working really hard on this? Um, so we make wireless um, soft sensors for the human body, and we make um, silicone stretch, fabric stretch, um, bend, and pressure sensors, um, which are wireless, and you can quite comfortably attach them to the body 
um, and as the user moves, the sensor stretches and it gives you real-time feedback onto a mobile device like your tablet or your phone and this is hugely exciting for companies in sports, healthcare, motion capture industries. So let me give you a for example. You don't have to talk about whether this is a product, but let's say that I am a golfer and you could put these things into my golf club so that I could tell whether my stroke was correct. You could do things like that, right? Oh yeah, and we've had a number of applications quite similar to that. Yeah. Um, and so it's, um, we've actually developed the stretch sense glove because the hands and also the foot is such a hot area in terms of being able to measure um, body motion and improve things like training techniques for athletes. Right. So this is, um, it, it's interesting because this is sort of that interesting boundary line between the internet of things and the wearables, all the things that are connected to the body, because these are connected sensors that are attached to the body in order to improve your capacity, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, the, we see it starting at wearables and ending up at the internet of things, in mm -hmm. a way. Um, wearables will be, it's the, the most obvious use case. Now everyone's going crazy for wearables. In the future, we're moving towards smart, soft matter. And that's really what, what stretch hands can enable. It's, it's wearables, it's... It's everything in the universe. If it stretches or expands or contracts, exactly. you'll be able to read it. So the fact that a building expands or a pipe expands or a bridge expands is something that you'd actually be able to sense. Yeah, I mean, we would typically look for applications where there's soft material. Mm -hmm. um, our sensors are particularly good in the soft material space. So mm -hmm. humans are really soft and that's why they're great <laughs> that's why they're great for, for wearables and that's why we're seeing a lot of applications from the market coming from that space. The same with healthcare. We're also is you know on top of measuring the uh, body motion and wearables were also measuring the interaction between devices and humans, how something presses up against the body or right. how someone um, you know feels against a chair or we can we can even quantify things like comfort now, which is okay, kind so, of cool. So, coming back to now, I mean, I'm in a buzzing little startup, and I I have worked in startups like this, which is one reason I have a very warm feeling about everyone being in a room and the production's <laughs> happening on the other side. And I would be an engineer. This is 25 years ago, writing firmware on this side of the wall. So I, I understand this. You were employee number one. So what was it like? What actually got you to believe in the folks that you were working with sufficient that you could actually come on board as an employee? I mean, that's easy. I, I worked with Ben and Todd for about... Who are the founders? The founders, Ben and Todd, yeah. Right. Ben's the CEO, Todd's the CTO. Um, I worked with them for about two years before StretchSense was founded. And they taught me almost everything I know about business and technology. So I know how smart those guys are. Mm -hmm. I know what they do, and I, I just completely believe in them. And uh, as a result, I believed in StretchSense and, and signed up. And... There's nothing uh, that's well, happened to what, what kind of... What was it like <laughs> to be in a company at such an early stage, though? I mean, we're, we're really just literally the three of you, I guess. Oh, it was fantastic. I recommend it to, to anyone coming out of university. You learn... Did you know what you were going to do any particular day when you walked in the door? Not really. And it changed. Right. Even throughout the day, it changed. So um, I'd be wearing every possible hat in the business at any one stage. I mean, sales, marketing, production, design photography even sometimes mm. it, it just kept changing it was really fantastic and you learn so much and you have an ability to to kind of design your role in a company design your career mm -hmm. instead of looking at a, a corporate hierarchy that's already been prescribed to you that you have to right. climb so right. there's, a it's, role. there's a there's a huge benefit to that so what what has it been like to see the company grow because we have uh, how many employees are there now 20 now 
Yeah. Okay, so that's a huge difference. I mean, I know from my own experience in startups that particularly 20 to 30 people, it starts to be too much for sort of, you don't really know everyone. Like, you probably actually know everyone in this room fairly yeah. well right now, right? What's it, what's it felt like as things have grown? And Shin, how long have you been with the company now? Um, so I've been at the company for one year. I joined um, as a sales and marketing manager in April last year. And how many employees were there at that point? I'd say maybe around 10. Okay. 10, yeah. yeah. All right. So you've seen it double and you've seen it go from 3 to 20. So how does that feel? Uh, things start to break, to be honest. Um, <laughs> they, you, you go through transition points. So right. I think the transition point for us was at 15 employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we went through that transition point and almost everything broke. <laughs> All our processes broke, our HR processes broke, our production tracking broke, our yeah. sales tracking broke. Right. Um, and things are still um, things are still breaking now, but <laughs> I think that's a good thing. Um, and I, um, we have an internal joke um, about ruining someone's day. Um, oh, I'm really about to ruin your day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ruin someone's day for um, the ultimate better of the betterment of the company. Um, and yeah, we've recently just um, introduced a third tier to the company um, hierarchy, and then we have a middle management, which wasn't in place last year. Um, and in terms of talking about roles changing, actually Anthony's role has changed over the last few weeks. Um, and yeah, I suppose I'll give it to Anthony to tell you more about that. So be- presumably as yeah. the company gets bigger, your role becomes more clearly defined. Exactly, exactly. So um, as the company gets bigger, you have you have clear reporting from each silo of the business, you know, marketing, sales, you have clear, um, people start to converge on roles in those particular departments based on what they're good at in the organization. Um, and it becomes clearer over time. And another thing happens as well, you start to hire in specialists or, or professionals at certain um, layers of the business. We actually just brought in our first sales specialist. It's another big transition point in our company who's, mm-hmm. that's changed a lot of things. You know, It really has and it's taught me a lot more and Ben and Todd a lot more even uh, about the business. So, but yeah, breaking things is definitely a positive, a positive outcome. It, it, it really is. I mean, we, we move as fast as we possibly can to uncover the things that we're doing badly and then we we go to fix them as quickly as possible as well so and um, did you feel were, were there points where things were breaking faster than you could fix them for a little while <laughs> when we were growing sometimes it appears that way mm-hmm. um, but we haven't run into any I don't think we've run into any real troubles yeah I think yeah. we've always been conscious about working um, smarter and more efficiently so we haven't Obviously, we've come across some crisis situations, um, you know, with shipping or safety, health and safety concerns. But um, we've always been able to, um, you know, sit down and review how how that happened and what processes broke and implement better ones for the future. Right. So, being at I guess the beginning of such what what everyone expects is going to be at such a big industry is that one of the reasons that you decided that you were going to take a job here because you could sort of believe the potential of this even if whether Stretch Sense becomes a huge company or not but that this entire area was going to be big. I'd say partly actually, and that was kind of the basis of um, the master's thesis that I wrote, which. Um, I was also working on my master's thesis last year as I was working in street science and it was all about sort of um, increasing the productivity of New Zealand and to, for that how you need to support the technology industry over um, things about the primary industries um, and so that was one of the things but also it was sort of um, the belief that I had in being told Anthony and this, um, the company and the people who work here so I'd say it's the people and the product. I mean I, I I have something to add to, to that as well. It definitely was a factor. Um, 
It was definitely a factor. I mean, being in an emerging market, uh, being part of a technology that isn't in the world yet, you know, so we, we have an opportunity to bring a new technology to the world and to see how it pans out and to see how it's integrated into industry. So I think that's, that's definitely a draw card, particularly for engineering types. You know, we're not really motivated that much by, by, pay. You know, exactly. by pay. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's about seeing your inventions out there. It's about seeing all of those things. You, you wanted to say something. Right? No, no, no. I'm, I'm going to throw the last question to Zach, who has written it down, right. but I'm going to actually let him say it. So Zach Pollan, who is our amazing New Zealand location producer. Last question. Thanks, Mark. The question I have is, what are some of the breakthroughs that you've seen in the time that you've been in the company? Oh, so many breakthroughs. Um, so I've, I've seen breakthroughs in technology. So we've had new technologies uh, come to fruition. So I mean, there's, there's fabric sensors now that we brought out, which mm -hmm. has kind of enabled a lot of the wearable things we're doing. Mm -hmm. And that's taken off. There have been um, process improvements, uh, things around how we how we track customers, how we track our revenue, how we track production, how we manage our staff. Um, there's been improvements in personal improvements. I've seen a lot of personal improvements, even in Ben and Todd, um, over the years, and how they manage people and how they they learn and actually deal with day-to-day -day situations. Um, and I guess the other one would be seeing those breaking points, you know, seeing the <laughs> seeing what happens when you go from. 10 to 20 employees, or what happens when your volumes of production jobs go past some transition point too. I mean, those are always fantastic, fantastic learning learning opportunities. Shit. Right, um, I'll say in terms of breakthroughs, um, you know, we see our company achieve these big great milestones, um, you know, steadily throughout as we grow. And I, I think one of the breakthroughs that I'd say is um, seeing that um, the international community um, recognize us um, as leaders as leaders in our wearable space. Um, so we've sort of um, always known and believed in the potential of soft sensing technology, but it's really nice to see our technology win awards um, and for our company to be um, joined into the acceleration program over in Plug and Play and all these, uh, you know, just the community giving us a nod that we're in the right space and doing the right thing. So. Wow. That's really great. But even and just even just our customers, I mean, it's our employees always to them they just ship a product and they don't know what happens to it. If you if you give them give them an opportunity to actually meet a customer and hear what they're doing with it, it's incredible for them. It's um it's just a huge learning opportunity to see that it's actually being used in Silicon Valley or around the world in some breakthrough technology that you know, and with some of the companies that we're working with as well, it's it's a huge, um, huge bit of positive feedback for them and a huge motivator. Anthony Shen, thank you very much for being on This Week in Startups New Zealand. Thank, thank you. you very much, guys. Cheers. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I've been back from New Zealand for a few days and I've had some time to reflect on what I saw there. And the thing that struck me, and you could hear people talking about it, was the collegiality in New Zealand, that people work together. Government works together with business. Businesses work together with one another because they see themselves as all being in it together. And that's 
made New Zealand capable of amazing things. Zero, one of the biggest SaaS companies out there now, came out of New Zealand out of this support environment because the seed investors, the angel investors, the VCs, and all of the other elements of the ecosystem were working together to see that company succeed. And I came back to Australia thinking that this was something we need here, something we need to bring here. Now, if you want to see photos from all of the places that we visited in New Zealand or or learn more about the New Zealand Venture Investment Fund or BizDojo or StretchSense, drop by our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. And you'll also find more photos and sound clouds of the podcast. Check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Now, big thanks to our sponsors, Omni Radio and Studio Mint. Their support makes this podcast possible. And thanks again to Felix Warmuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that's always a joy to listen to. Thanks to Chris Twist, Nick Schuring, Jonah Merchant, Anthony Harbors, and Xinjiang Park for taking the time to come on to our show. And big thanks to Zach Pullen for our awesome New Zealand location producing. That all came together because of his hard work on the ground. We'll be back in a fortnight talking to Justin Dry and Andre Elkmeyer of Vino Mofo, and we'll ask them if, in wine, is there truth? Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia and New Zealand.